Well, welcome to Clear Creek. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here. And if you are a guest, welcome. We are so glad that you are uh, maybe kicking the tires of faith or just kicking the tires of this church. Either way, kick the tires. We're glad you're here. I want to give you just a couple things before we get into this morning's teaching. Number one, you have joined a perfect church to be a part of if you are an imperfect person. Not a one of us has it all figured out. Not one of us is perfect. By the way, if you want to say amen for the one sitting next to you, feel free. That's okay. But we know a perfect Savior who loves us in spite of all of it. And so our hope is in Jesus Christ. We're just glad that you're here. Second thing I want you to know, you've picked a great day to be here. Now, some of you are going, okay, so what are we talking about? What are we, what, what are we getting into today? Now, before I tell you, before I tell you, let's do a little recap. We're in a series called Adore, God's Gift of Marriage, Sex, and Singleness. Because we believe to follow and live the life God wants us to live, it's really difficult to live a fully restored life if our relationships are all busted up and janky. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? So we're talking about that because we believe your relationships, all of them are important to God and he wants to help us out here. So week one, you remember week one, we dealt with this first myth, which was simply this, that my relationships are supposed to make me happy. That my relationships are foundationally, primarily, exclusively to make me happy. We said, now this is a myth. And I know some of you, as soon as I said that, said, well, wait a minute. So what's the alternative? That my relationship is to make me miserable? And the whole church said, yes, absolutely, right? No, no, of course not. But rather, what Scripture teaches is that a marriage or any sort of committed relationship or even just two friends who say, we're here together, is not primarily about your happiness because if you have two people seeking their own happiness, they're like two mosquitoes feeding off one another. They're empty because they're only there to get what they can get. So we said it's not this. It's the reality is put commitment, put covenant before happiness, and God in his infinite wisdom will often give you both the covenant commitment and the happiness you so long for. Then last week we looked at the second myth, and here's it. There's only one right man or woman for me. This is the myth of Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Now, I want to be real clear before I put the next slide up here. I am married to Mrs. Wright. I absolutely believe that my wife is the right woman for me. You say, Josh, how do you know? How do you know? And here's how I know. Are you ready? Because I'm married to her. As soon as... Yeah, that's a good clap. There you go. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lindsay. Uh, because as soon as... As soon as... I said, I do, and she said, I do, and we came together. That was it. She's now my one. So instead of being more preoccupied with finding some mythical one, because here's the reality. If you're simply saying there's only one right person, and there's only one out there, and I'm going to look and look and look, here's what happens. It creates an incredible level of stress and anxiety on us. It also causes concern when in a marriage, difficult times come. You think, well, it must be because I'm not married to the right person, because if I was married to the right person, we wouldn't have any problems. And all those who've been married more than three days say, (laughs) here's the reality, here's the reality. Instead of the myth, focus on becoming the right kind of person as you look for the right kind of person. If you want to have a marriage, if you want to have a relationship of value, of worth, instead of being so preoccupied with what they bring to the table, finding the perfect person who fixes and fulfills you, you focus on becoming the right kind of person. And it's an amazing thing. As I get better, my marriage just seems to get better. 
When I get better, my wife incredibly seems to become a better wife when I focus on me. Now, today, we're going to talk about what for some can be a touchy topic, but it doesn't need to be. Today, we're talking about uh, physical intimacy. We're talking about uh, sex in marriage. We're going to talk about this thing that is such a part of who we are and a center of what matters to us as human beings. But before we get into it, I want to give you two resources. First one, if you're parents and you're kind of going, how do I have this conversation well with my kids? I highly recommend, and I've referenced it before, this series of books called God's Design for Sex. And it is in four parts, and I love it. The first one's like a storybook sort of drawing. It's for preschool and early elementary, and it talks about how God has given you a body that's unique and purposeful, and it's special, and it's to be protected not, not, not guarded in some weird way, but, but you are an important being because God made you. The second one gets into more of how we develop and change and how God makes babies. And then the third one for upper elementary, early middle school deals with some of the questions that begin to come. And then the fourth one is very much dealing with cultural issues and helping our children navigate those moments. I highly recommend this, and we have a copy of these four in our library if you're interested, or you can get them online. Now, if you're married, or if you're dating, or you would like to get married someday, the book I highly recommend on this topic is by Dr. Kevin Lehman called Sheet Music, because you make music where? In the sheets. That's, okay, yeah, but um, it, folks, it only goes downhill from here, okay? Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. Now, if I had time, I'd tell you all sorts of stories about this. It's a fun book and a funny book. Fellas, it's hilarious. Just real quick, when I was uh, interning at a church in Texas, I was getting married. I was reading this book per my premarital counseling instruction. I had it on the side table in the dorm room where myself and another adult chaperone were staying. And my buddy, he's been married like 20 years at this point. I come into the dorm room. He's laying on his bed reading my book crying. He is laughing so hard because of the simple title of the chapter he's reading. You say, what was the title? I'm not going to tell you. We're in mixed company. It's hilarious though. You'll enjoy it. Pick up a copy, help your marriage. Trust me, it's good stuff. Now, with that in mind, why are we talking about this? Because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to God's purpose to physical intimacy, isn't there? Anyone, just show of hands, any of you agree that the culture and the church all tend to be a little confused when it comes to this topic? Anyone else see a little confusion? So I want to walk through three views of sex, and then I want to walk through some Hebrew words that will help us understand the proper order of things, and then I want to give some hope at the end, because I think no matter where we stand, we could all use a little more hope in today's world. So let's start. Three different views of sex. Now, the world, here's the first cultural view. The world says that sex is God. The world will say sex is God. You say, no, wait a minute. What do you mean that? God or a God is whatever you place in your life as the ultimate thing or ultimate value. So whatever you say is the ultimate thing about you or about your life becomes your functional God. This is why our culture is so preoccupied with sex, with sexual orientation, with preferences and all those things, because this is the ultimate thing about you according to culture. Now, this is not a modern issue, is it? Its roots go all the way back. If you go all the way back to your Old Testament, you will see that this was a common view in the ancient world. In the ancient world, cultures celebrated sex. They had fertility cults where the physical act was supposed to bring rain from the gods. It was to bring crops on the ground. In fact, there were temples dedicated to this act and activity. 
And then you go ahead further in time. It wasn't just that there were cults based around this, but very temples, in fact. There's one, uh, the temple of Artemis, the goddess of love. And so the idea was you would physically enact something to bring about something in your life. And so ancient cultures had the view that this was the ultimate expression of who you are. And our culture has embraced this full cloth, hasn't it? You'll even have people in our culture who evangelize particular ways of living and lifestyles because your preference, orientation, interest, and everything else are paramount to who you are according to this view. And this is why in our culture, we celebrate everything. This is why in our culture, pornography is such a major issue. Let me just give you a couple stats. In our culture today, there is more money spent on pornography than, get this, the combined revenue of professional football, baseball, and basketball combined. Now, notice I didn't say soccer because no one watches professional soccer. But the, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. It also gains more revenue than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. It also has more revenue than what we as a nation give on foreign aid. It's a major problem. And by the way, it is consumed primarily by 12 to 17-year-old boys. This is a big deal, isn't it? The first view is that sex is God. It's the most important thing about you. Now, because of this view, many, and primarily within the church, we've just kind of gone the other extreme, haven't we? It's not that sex is God. Rather, we say sex is gross. Heebie-jeebies. You say, well, nah, Josh, come on. Is that overstating it a bit? When was the last time you heard this preach from the church platform? When was the last time you had a class on this topic in the church? It's because for many of us, we have not taken sex is God. We have taken it sex is gross. Now, this is an ancient idea as well. It comes from and has its origin in the ancient Greek Stoic philosophers who believed that there was a separation between one's physical body and one's soul self. So the body is evil and ugly and dirty, but your soul is what you really are. And what ended up happening is, although that's a pagan view, many of the early church fathers adopted this view and would say things such as, it would be better for the human race to cease than for Christians to have sex. This is where a lot of our understanding of a prudish way of viewing sex came from. In fact, in today's culture, one of the places we see it is even in the Catholic Church where they prohibit priests from getting married, correct? Because celibacy is seen as the higher virtue than marriage. And so there are these two different views. And so with this view, what's ended up happening is we say things like, well, sex is gross. It's vile. It's disgusting. It's dirty. It's icky. So save it for the one you love. Isn't that what we say? And you talk about why our kids have this mental, emotional, spiritual whiplash on this topic because we don't teach it as the Bible teaches it. You say, well, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible says it's not God and it's not gross. Rather, the Bible says that sex is God's gift. It's a gift. And if it's from God, therefore, it is fundamentally and definitionally good. Every good and perfect gift comes from whom, church? Sex is a gift. Now, what does this mean if sex is a gift? Well, what we see is in Genesis, God makes man. He makes woman with man parts and women parts. And he makes them in such a way for a purpose. 
I am trying to be delicate. I understand the ears in the room, okay, folks? So give, me, give me a little grace here, okay? But what ends up happening is we begin to see that God has given us a multidimensional gift, and it has multidimensional purposes. God gives us sex. I'm going to give you three reasons why God's gift of sex is really a gift. And I want you to write this down. These aren't the only ones. If we had time, we'd go through a bunch more, but let me give you three. The first one is found in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says this. God blessed them. This is the first man, first woman. And he said to them, say this out loud with me. Are you ready? Be and be fruitful and increase in number. You say, how do you do that? Make babies. I'm sorry. A movie quote comes to mind when I start saying it that way. We'll skip over that, though. He then says, fill the earth and subdue it. Why? Because God's purpose is bigger than just one or two people. It's going to require a lot more people. So have babies. Hear me now. God created sex first for procreation, the gift of more people. And it wasn't like God was in heaven. He creates man, creates woman. He says, don't go anywhere. He goes to the kitchen to make a sandwich makes a sandwich, comes back, and as he's about to take a bite, looks down and goes, what are you doing? That's not how it happened. He created it for procreation, but it's not just for procreation. God also created it for pleasure. God created it that would be enjoyable. Think about it this. There are parts of your body that have no other purpose than to be enjoyable. Why? Because God loves you. He has a purpose beyond procreation. And if we were in a real comfortable church, I'd ask all the men for an amen, and I'd get one. But instead, let's look at some scripture. You say, okay, where do we see this? Well, let me show you a couple places where it can't simply be procreation, the purpose of this gift from God. It has to be more than that. The first place is Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Let me give you the context. This is a husband to his new bride on their wedding night. And I want you to hear what he says to her and ask yourself this question. Does this passage sound like a scientific definition of procreation? Okay, that's your assignment, so pay attention. Here it is, verse five or verse one says this. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. Real quick, they're not related. I just want to be clear here. I know it's different cultures. They're not related. This is just a term of endearment, so there we go. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And notice this phrase. If this is just scientific, if this is just procreation, notice this. Eat, friends, and drink. What? Drink your fill of love. Now, question, does that sound like a scientific definition or description of procreation? No. This is a beautiful picture of God's gift in God's place to be enjoyed. That's marriage between a man and a woman. Let me give you one more passage. This is from Song of Solomon chapter 7. Now, before you put it up here, I just need to be clear. This does not translate into 21st century American vernacular. So, fellas, I would not recommend any of this for, your, for you to woo your wife later tonight, okay? But let's just read this. Notice this. He says, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel... <clears throat> is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. And your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Look at me for a second, fellas. Don't. Just don't. 
There has never been a woman in the history of the world who goes, would you define this as a heap of wheat with lilies? I, I would, and I would probably steer clear about the large thighs comment as well, okay? It just doesn't translate. It goes on. Notice the next line. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Hezbon by the gates of Bath Rabin. What's he saying? Your eyes are beautiful and clear. Your nose, <laughs> your nose, right? It's like the Tower of Lebanon. <laughs> Looking toward Damascus. Finally, it says this. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. What's he saying? He's saying, your nose, you look like Pinocchio, and I dig it. <laughs> right? No. Here's the first thing you need to understand. This is not just procreation. This is a man wooing his wife, isn't it? And every one of the phrases he uses, almost everyone has a dual meaning. He's not simply talking about the length of his wife's nose or something. Rather, that is symbolic for her dignity and character. He's saying you are a woman of character. Have you ever heard someone talk about another person having a Roman nose? He wasn't referring to the shape. He was referring to their character. He is talking to her and he's loving her. Now, what's interesting to me, this is the only place in the Song of Solomon that when he describes his wife, he begins with her feet and go up. Isn't it amazing, men, that he begins with a point or one of the features that many women are most self-conscious about? And he works his way up. In other words, I love everything about you. Hear me. He is not interested in simply having sex with a body. He wants to be in love with his wife. And there's a difference, isn't there? It goes deeper than just physicality. And listen, here's why. Here's why. There's more going on than physical bodies coming together. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the second thing you need to know. So it's for procreation. Second, it's for pleasure. But third, and this is so important. Go and put this up. It's for paste. Everyone say, what? Genesis chapter 2 gives us a picture. This is not simply for having babies. It's not simply for pleasure, but it has an important purpose for your marriage. And here it is in chapter 2 of Genesis. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. By the way, boys, before you put a ring on her finger, leave mommy's house. Get a job. Be a man. But notice this. He says, and is. Say this word out loud with me. United. You know what that word in Hebrew really means? It means glued, pasted together, that the gift of intimacy does more than give one temporary pleasure or create babies, but in a marital committed relationship, it bonds a man and a woman together. Quick question, and the answer is yes. Quick question, is marriage hard sometimes, church? Now, now, look, as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that, as soon as I tell guys, hey, marriages are hard. And marriages, you fight sometimes. As soon as I say that, I've always got some newlywed couple sitting out there. The guy's got his around his, around his girl. He's like, no, baby, it's great. I love you. And the rest of us just go, hey, that's great. Uh, wait till Tuesday. <clears throat> Can we be honest? Marriage is hard. There are times where my selfishness trumps my desire to do what God calls me to do as a husband. And my wife's selfishness, although infrequent, trumps what she is called to do as a wife. 
And this gift of God is a gift that bonds us together. There is actually chemistry that happens only in the act of lovemaking. In fact, it doesn't even happen. I'm trying to be delicate here. It doesn't even happen in a solo act, if you get my drift. There are things that happen that God does that bonds a husband and a wife together. This is the gift of God, church. He thought it up and he gave it to us. Now, here's the question. Why is it that such a good gift is often so painful for so many? Because if it's a good gift, then why isn't every time it's expressed, why doesn't it always work? And let's go a little more specific. Why is it that if it's a good gift from God, that it is not always a beautiful gift in marriage even? Can we just be honest enough to admit that the gift of intimacy is sometimes beautiful and sometimes it's incredibly harmful? And I want to walk you through very briefly three words that help us understand the why behind the what of this. Because for you to get the brilliance of God and to understand the beauty of his gift and to run in the way he's called you, we need to understand the why. And so I'm going to use three Hebrew words. These are three different words that all refer to the idea of love. Now, here's the thing. In English, how many words do we have for the word love? Not a trick question. One, right? So we say of things in our life, we say, well, I love hot dogs, and I love my puppy dog, and I love my wife. Quick question. And men, the answer is yes. Are we talking about different kinds of love between hot dogs, puppy dogs, and your wife? Men, the answer is what? Yes. We use one word, but it's collapsed down in one idea. The Hebrews and the Greeks had multiple levels. And to understand what God wants for you and wants for me, we have to understand what he means. So let's walk through these very briefly. The very first word, the very first Hebrew word for understanding God's purpose for this gift is the word raya. Everybody say raya. Raya is friendship, love. This is when you and a group of buddies are hanging out and you begin to connect with people in your sphere of influence, in your peer group. This is just, we're friends. This is Proverbs where it says, a friend loves at all times. That's raya. Now, if raya develops, if you are growing in friendship with someone and you begin to eye that pretty young thing or that handsome hairy-legged dude, it grows from raya to this next level, this one called ahava. Everybody say ahava. Doesn't that feel good? Clear the throat a bit on that one. This is love of the will. So what does that mean? Love of the will is not... I think you're cute, or you make my heart flutter. Love of the will says, I've seen you're crazy, and I'm not going anywhere. How many of us know every one of us has a little bit of crazy in us? We just do a real good job of hiding it, don't we? See, what happens is if you're spending time with people, after enough time, it doesn't matter how much we try to look a certain way, after a while, the mask begins to slip, the paint begins to peel, and the real stuff begins to come out, doesn't it? Ahava says, I have seen the real you, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm choosing you. It is an act of the will. See, what most of us have been sold is that love is an emotional, fleeting desire. And when things get tough, the desire goes, and we assume we've lost our love. Friends, that is not biblical love. Biblical love says, I've seen your junk, you've seen my junk, and we're in this together. I'll tell you, a number of years ago when Lindsay and I were first married, we just fought a lot. I mean, just, just honestly, it was not very pleasant for either of us. And during one of the really difficult seasons where we just kind of going at it over stupid things, like, well, did you, did you tear the, the dryer sheet in half before you put it in? Or did you, I mean, dumb stuff that we'd argue about. It's just stupid. 
When it was a really difficult time, I remember hearing a phrase that just helped my heart so much. I heard a guy who was relating what he heard, and it helped me. He said this. He said he was having a hard time in his marriage, and he asked a buddy. He said, hey, here's what's going on. What do I do? And his friend said this, and I just love this. He says, well, listen, you're going to fight with someone for the rest of your life if you get married. Do you want to fight with this person for the rest of your life? And when I heard that, I thought, yes, I want to fight with Lindsay for the rest of my life. She's, she's my fighting buddy. See, if you raya someone and then move into ahava, you don't have to be worried that when they say something or when you mess up, that the thing is over. Ahava says, I am here. Now, why is this so important before we get to physical intimacy? Because in physical intimacy, everything about you is laid bare. And you need to know that when they see you in every wrinkle and every shape, they're not going anywhere. Because after we get through Ahava, with one special person, you get to this next and final level, and it's this word, dode. Everyone, maybe in your best Barry White voice, you'll want to say it, but just give me a nice dode. Dode, yeah, what is that? According to theologian Paul House, dode literally can be translated a mingling of souls. It's the idea that when you are intimate with your spouse, it's not just two bodies, it is two souls coming together. It's more than just a physical act, isn't it? I'll prove it to you. We all know of someone or perhaps, and by God's grace, I hope you were not one of these people, and if you are, I'm so sorry, but we all know someone who has been violated physically, don't we? We know someone who's been sexually attacked or hurt, and we know the pain that that has caused them. And here's how you know that intimacy is more than a physical Act, that there's something on a soul level that's happening is because if you break a physical bone, you don't carry with you emotional scars, but you do if you've been attacked or abused in a particular way. For instance, when I was 10 years old, I played gymnastics and we were at a meet. I did a flip, came off wrong and broke my ankle. Everyone heard a pop. And so the next six weeks, I'm in a cast. And I can remember when I got out of the cast, you know, you kind of get back up and running and, and it hurt for a while. But 30 some odd years later, I'm not walking around with emotional scars. I don't have a hard time connecting with people because I broke my ankle. I don't have fear of being alone with certain kinds of people because I broke my ankle. Are you tracking with me what I'm saying here? And yet anyone who has been attacked or harmed in this way deals often with those things for years. Why? Because it's more than just two bodies meeting. There is a soul level attachment and connection. This is why God says through this beautiful passage in Song of Solomon chapter 8, the author says, do not awaken love before it is ready. There needs to be protection around it because like a flame, it's a beautiful gift of warmth. It can cook food. It can create uh, light. But if it is outside of the bounds of the rocks, the protective area, it is damaging and detrimental and can consume everything. And we know what that's like because we live in a world consumed by this, don't we? So, So what do we do with all this? If this is the proper order, and many of us here this morning, if we're honest... I'll just speak to the men for a moment. I won't speak for the ladies, but men, let's just be honest. Every one of us has at least had a wayward thought at least once in our lives. Can I get a little eye wink or something from anyone who agrees with me there? And Jesus tells us that if we as men simply look with lustful intent at another person, at a woman, it's as though we've committed adultery. So let's just be real honest with what we're talking about. Most of us have gotten the order wrong here. So what do we do? What do we do? Because we're not coming in here 
with blank slates. We're all coming in with a variety of experiences. So how do we do what we need to do? Where do we go from here? Because here's the thing, the mingling of souls, this idea of dode, let's be frank, it is so easy to have a physical connection, but it takes a lot more work to have an emotional, relational connection, doesn't it? I mean, just functionally speaking, it's not hard to be physically intimate, but it is very difficult to have this I will be with you forever commitment. This is why there was a study that came out in 2017 interviewing millennials. Now, I'm not picking on millennials. I happen to be one just at the very beginning point. So look, you're my people. I get it. But they interviewed millennials and they asked basically this question. They said, what is more difficult for you? And they found that most millennials were more comfortable being physically intimate with someone than having a deep conversation with that same person. They found it was easier to be physically intimate than have a deep conversation. Why? Because for this to happen in a safe, ongoing way, there's more than just, I like you, you like me. It is a commitment We're together no matter what. See, this is why God in his brilliance says, here's the good gift, but you need to be thoughtful in how you steward the gift because in the bounds, it's great gift of love and warmth and connection, but outside it is damaging and destructive. And so what do we do with all this? Well, here's just a couple things as we close this morning. For this to be beautiful and not destructive, it requires that you and I begin And we go back to this idea of being friends first that we say, then I'm going to commit no matter what. It begins there. And for us to experience what God has intended and desired, we don't simply run to the physicality. We run to all of this because, because, come on, let's be honest. Your relationships, your relationships, your marriage at its deepest, at its most fulfilling is when you also know that the person you're with is going to be there no matter what, isn't it? And isn't it true that then when you're intimate, there's a great sense of connection far more. Now, I want to be real clear. I don't believe that you have to be a Christian to enjoy sex. You don't. Biologically speaking, anyone can enjoy it whether they believe in God or not. Correct? Let's just be honest with what we're saying here. But what scripture is saying is if you want more than just a physical experience, if you want more than just two bodies, if you want more than just even an emotional experience, if you want to experience the fullness of soul to soul connection, it happens in walking with understanding God's design and the designer himself. This is the way God made it. This is the way God designed it. Now, This is a difficult thing. There are a lot of difficult reasons why coming to this point for most of us can be hard. One, if you are a young couple, this is hard because you have kids. You think it'd be great to have time. It'd be great to have energy. But I've got kids waking up throughout the night. I've got kids getting up early for school. I've got kids' activities. I've got kids' sports, and I'm tired. And so for many of us, this may be more of a pipe dream right now, or it seems like it is, because, ladies, you're just tired, and you would like for your husband to stop pestering you for a decade, and then you can resume contact, correct? So it is hard. Let's just be honest. And then for some of us, we've come into the relationship with unrealistic expectations because of things we've either witnessed or seen, or done. And this is why for us to begin with this point to say it is a good gift. Now, how did God design it? It's so, so very important. Now, here's where I want us to end this morning. So where do we go from here? I want to give you three things, call it a morning. Number one is simply this. I don't know where you are, but wherever you are, here's the first thing. Are you ready? 
take a deep breath. You're human. If you have sinned, if you have not gotten this right, congratulations, you're a part of the human race. Now, I didn't say that sin is a good thing, did I? But what I want you to hear is God knows that you are fallible and you are broken like I am fallible and I'm broken. If we weren't, he would not have sent Jesus. He gave us Jesus because we are broken in every way, including this way, friends. This is why the psalmist says of God, he says, you know, you know that we're just dust. You know that we're not perfect. Help us, God, because you know we can't help ourselves. The first thing I would say, wherever you are this morning, will you please just take a breath and recognize you were never called to figure it out all on your own. And if you come in this place broken, we come to meet a God who puts broken pieces back together. The second thing I want to say to you is simply this. It's not enough to just take a breath and say, okay, the next step is to step into the light. The enemy has no power over us in the light. It's only in the darkness, in secrets, in hidden places that the enemy can continue heaping on guilt and shame. Isn't that right? You need brothers and sisters who, according to James chapter 5, will pray for you, who will encourage you. Because James says, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, he says, the prayers of the righteous person are effective. And he says, if you will pray for one another, if you will encourage one another, you will be healed. We come into the light. This is why the church has got to be a place where we are able to express our broken places, our struggles, our issues without condemnation, but for help and encouragement. And I just want you to know, as long as I'm the minister here, if you have any challenges, this is going to be a safe place to talk about them. Because I need a safe place to talk about what's wrong in my life if I'm going to find healing. Does anyone else need that as well? No? No? Anyone else need a safe place to talk about what's going on in their lives? And so, come into the light. Second thing and third, third, third thing. Simply this. I want you to remember this phrase. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Remember, friends, that it is never too late to start. It's never too late. If you're single and you've made decisions that you wish you had not made... It's not too late. Or maybe for those of us, if we've made decisions that we wish we could undo, maybe we need to add this word. It's never too late to start again, to recommit and say today, God, the past is the past. I can't fix it. But your grace forgave me. It forgives me. And it will forgive me forever. To say today, I start Again, if you're a single person and you're just stepping into this life and you're going, I want a great marriage, it's never too late to start and get a vision for what you want. Start dating in a group of friends. Find a group that you want to be close to. And from that, by God's grace, he may reveal to you the kind of person that you could live with for the rest of your life. Start there and then build to ahava. If you're a married couple and things are just tough, go back to dating your spouse. You say, Josh, we don't have time to date We've got kids. Okay, okay, here we go. You have time. You have time to have a five-minute conversation as the kids are in bed. And if they're not in bed, you have locks on their doors and on your doors, and I bet you could find a sock for their mouth. It is okay. (laughs) Not not really. Don't do that, okay? You have five minutes. Have a date with each other. You say, okay, we have time, but we don't have enough money to go do something. Okay, okay, okay. So you're poor like the rest of us. Congratulations. 
Let me give you two cheap dates. My uncle and aunt, he's a preacher, has been for a million years. They've always been tight on budget. So you want you want to know what they do for their date? Every Friday night, they go to a date at Walmart. They walk the aisle, she'll get stuff, and he'll walk behind going, you're looking good, baby. She'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> they got a date every week. They do something together, just the two of them. I have another friend, he's and his wife, they also, money is tight. So what do they do? They go to the card section of the Walgreens or the Walmart, and they will each pick out a card that they like for the other one, and they'll come together and say, this is the card I would get you. This is what I think about you. And then they put it back. <laughs> That's great. See, here's what I want you to know. It's never too late to start or start again. If the marriage is cold in the bedroom, go start dating. Raya your wife, ahava your spouse, and then by God's grace, it can come back into this moment of intimacy. But wherever you are, it is never too late to start again. Friend, I don't care if you did something last night. It is never too late to start again. Lamentations chapter three gives this beautiful picture because I think for so many of us, when we make mistakes, it happens in the night, doesn't it? Happens in the evenings. And I love that God knows this so that in Lamentation chapter 3, notice these words he says. He says, great is his, what church? Faithfulness. When I'm unfaithful, he is faithful. When I have sinned, he is sinless. When I am unbroken, he breaks. And he, or he, he fixes what is broken. And notice this, it says, his mercies. Notice this, begin afresh each morning. Even if you stepped in this morning with the guilt of last night, he says, child, I will give you new grace, new mercy right now. Begin again. It's never too late. It's never too late. So as we come to a close this morning, I want you to know your next step. Here's some options. If you have yet to say yes to Jesus, saying, I need you, I I ask for your forgiveness, start today. You can do that by confessing your sins to him by believing that he is the savior of the world and that you want him as yours and putting him on in baptism. If you're not sure what that means, if you're just kind of curious about what it means, you visit with me out at the next step table here during the song we're about to sing. We'd love to help you. And if you're already a Christ follower and you're just needing encouragement, then this morning, start again. Recommit to your first love and then step into relationship better with your spouse. And if you're single, this is the picture. You just say, okay, God, this is who I want to be. And I am going to start again today. No matter the past, today I step into what you're calling me to do. And so, let's settle our feet for a moment. I want you to pause and reflect. We're gonna pray for a second here. Go ahead and put your feet flat on the floor. Get in a comfortable position. As we've already said this morning, just take a breath. So maybe you wanna take a deep breath, close your eyes. Just pause for a moment here. What do you need to say to God? What do you need from him? Would you do that as we pray? Father, thank you for knowing that we are but dust. The pull of the brokenness in our own lives in this world is just so great at times. And while that does not justify any sin in my life or our lives, it is a reminder that we need you. Father, will you receive the questions, the concerns, maybe the guilt or shame that is in this room for anyone who needs to step into relationship with you? I pray that they would, they would do that. They would experience new life today. It is never too late to start again. For anyone who knows you but needs to be reminded of their love and their relationship with you, would you in this moment even 
speak to their heart and just say, child, I knew you before you were born. I sent my son to die for you before you took your first breath. He took his last so that you would have life forever. May my brothers and sisters and my friends in this room know that you love them and that it's never too late to start again because what Jesus did can cover everything we've ever done. We thank you for hearing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.